Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of The Shift Show where my number one goal is to bring you the tools, ideas, and the latest science to help you change athletes' lives. My name is Dave Tilly and today on the podcast I am extremely excited to bring everyone um, just an amazing interview I did recently with someone who's kind of a legend in the field of sports science uh, as well as you know performance and injury reduction research. I recently attended uh, a course hosted by Tim Gabbett. Uh, Tim Gabbett is a uh, international researcher and professional sports consultant. He's worked uh, around the world at pretty much every level of you know athletics you can imagine: the elite level, professional level, Olympic level, uh, NCAA Division One. There's just you know, no no amount of limit to his uh, ability to to reach the world and help people. So, for those that are not familiar with Tim, he holds a PhD in human physiology and another PhD in applied science uh, of professional football. He spent 20 years working, uh, you know, in research, and uh, a lot of it centers around the concept of a workload or you know, uh, the ability to use the workload concept of something of how much work you've done in one week compared to the three weeks before that. That's the acute to chronic workload ratio, as we'll talk about in the podcast. But he's really spent his last couple decades researching this, this, the concepts of, you know, how do you reach elite level performance? How can we maybe have a better wrap around how to predict or, you know, have an understanding of risk of injuries? And how can we really get the most out of athletes at an individual level, a team sports level? And really, he's he's kind of spent the last two decades just digging in the research and, and doing studies and collecting data about the, some of the really complex situation uh, that occur in sports and some of the more, you know, complex questions, I should say, about, you know, how do we maybe understand when someone's at risk for injury? How do we understand when someone's going to have their optimal performance? And, you know, these really kind of complicated questions that need really, really in-depth answers. So if you haven't really heard of Tim before, he's published over 200 peer-reviewed articles. He's presented at 200 plus national and international conferences. He's published multiple textbooks and chapters and uh, all these concepts that we'll talk about. So um, I've been studying Tim's work for the last five to 10 years. Uh, it's made a significant influence on the way that, you know, I work as a sports physical therapist, but also on my coaching, uh, you know, my coaching world of gymnastics. It's, it's a huge influence on how I think about maybe the future of our sport for gymnastics in general, but also many other youth athletics, how we're trying to understand how much is enough to protect people uh, and build up their tolerance to a very high workload, but also not enough to push the gas pedal so hard that we maybe put somebody at risk of injury or that we cause someone, you know, burnout or something like that. So uh, I think many people in the strength conditioning, sports physical therapy, and in general, you know, physical therapy or medical world are using his work uh, really, really well. Um, but I think there's also a lot of unknowns uh, from the data that that Tim's really kind of open about talking about. So I recently attended his full two-day course where I learned an incredible amount. I highly recommend anybody who's, uh, you know, in the area where he's teaching, I, I would definitely take it. But uh, I had reached out and talked to Tim before about, you know, some questions in gymnastics, some questions in youth athletics as in general, because uh, a lot of the research that he has done is done in adult uh, professional sports or Olympic sports, people who are of mature skeletal age and are a little bit farther along their career. And, um, you know, it's, it's really hard for me to kind of wrap my head around maybe how these things apply to uh, the way that I'm, I'm working now. And uh, also just from other influences I've had and in, in mentors in my career or things like that, I, I had a lot of questions for Tim about how he thinks uh, his workload science applies to, you know, training cultures and environments and positive or negative uh, coaching styles just due to the the controversy in gymnastics right now and also many other youth sports that are kind of getting uh, some some heat right now about the way coaches and the way training environments are being built around year-round training and around uh, some some very high pressures put on kids when they're young before
before uh, going through puberty. And so a lot of these things have been floating around in my head in the last five to 10 years. And so uh, I, I reached out to Tim and said, hey, can we do a podcast uh, when you're here for the course? So I, I took the full course and studied the material as much as I could. And then we had a really good discussion. So you'll see through this uh, through this kind of podcast that we, we dance around a lot of different concepts. So one is just the basics of his concepts for acute to chronic workload ratios and, and something called the floor and the ceiling that he's, he's been really helpful to educate us on. Um, we talk about a few misconceptions that you know he thinks is is occurring with applying his research and his data. Uh, and then we kind of dive into some realms about things that are maybe unknown territory. So we talk about how his research applies to kids and youth sports and youth athletics in general, but also gymnastics. And then we start to talk more about maybe the mix of his work with some other people like Robert Zapolsky or people who have studied um, stress neuroendocrinology. So we talk about you know the global stress uh, effect on kids, but also on athletes in general, how mental, emotional, and physical workloads all kind of pile up on top to, to create something you want to look at. Um, we talk about something really important, which is, I think, what Tim is maybe not known for, but uh, talking about how do you balance looking at all the data and the numbers of workloads along with just good old-fashioned communication and, and talking with your athletes and reading your athletes as a coach. And then we also kind of talk about coaching style, how positive or negative training environments influence the amount of stress that kids feel and the, and the workloads done. And then lastly, we take this conversation towards, you know, how does this apply to like surgery settings of people who have slap tears or ACL tears or how are we going to rebuild somebody back up to a high level of workload after they've had a prolonged time away from uh, the, the sport or training? And then we end on just some concepts around how do we implement uh, these very new ideas to sport coaches or strength and conditioning coaches or medical providers who maybe are unfamiliar with it, you know, how do you dance that line between introducing something radically new like this and, and, and monitoring these things, not just going off of, you know, your intuition, but how do you get everybody on board as a as an entire staff to maybe use this and not be so worried about bruising someone's ego or stepping on toes or things like that. So uh, that's a, a long intro, but it, it's much needed for Tim. He's a really good guy and he has a lot of great, uh, you know, tips to offer but he also is just really open about what we know what we maybe don't know and, and kind of how the, the research is evolving so uh, without further ado i hope you enjoy this podcast with tim gabbett um, i'm here with tim gabbett and the first thing is you are a monster for offering to do a podcast after two days of teaching a course which speaks to your character so <laughs> Uh, I think I'm very grateful, as many people who follow the show or medical are, we're thankful for your research and your work and your ability to help people, but I think I'm more, now seeing you after a two-day course, I'm even more grateful for the amount of work you do and your work ethic, man. Crazy. So. Oh, well, yeah, it's, I appreciate the chance to have a chat to you about it. It's, um, like, the, the course was unreal. Like, it was. That it was, was, I don't think, I mean, I've been to a couple of really good courses. I usually do one, one or two big courses a year. I think the next... The other course that I've taken that was that impactful was the SFMA course, which is a medical model assessment course. It was just yeah. like, whoa, this is big. You know, and after reading all the research and now seeing it in context, when you actually see the data and you're like, whoa, this is like a big, this is a big thing that we could do. And the interaction from the clients with the people we had in the course was really cool, like a really cool discussion, a good blend of where the numbers fall and how do you actually do something with it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Like that's, um, to me, that's, that's always uh, what makes the course is so much fun. It's... Yeah. Um, it's the interaction, it's yeah. the discussion, and, and we really don't know. We've got an idea. I said it at the start. We've got an idea where the course is going to mm. go, but um, it goes into places that I, I didn't even expect it. So mm. it's the contribution of everyone that makes it a good course. Yeah, good thought-provoking case studies too. We had a lot of different sports represented, which was cool to see. Yeah. You know how you take one concept and expand it out globally. Um, and I think there's two things that I took away from the course. I didn't tell you what I was going to say this, but I think the biggest things that I took away one was that 
you're really into balancing the numbers with the person in front of you. And I think that's really valuable for medical practitioners and stuff like that. But the other thing that was really valuable is uh, your honesty with, you know, this is where we're at. It might change next week. We don't really know. I think sometimes, as you have said on another podcast that you around social media, it's like once it hits social media, it's like fact, it's evidence. And people are like, no, this is what it is. And you're like, well, not really. It's a, it's a thought process. We're evolving. It's not hardcore, you know? Yeah. Look, if, if um, you know, let's think of technology. If, if technology didn't evolve, um, we wouldn't fit a computer in this, in this office <laughs> yeah. here that we're in. Yeah. Um, we'd still be we'd still be using landlines mm. to communicate with each other. We wouldn't yeah. walk around with mobile phones. Right, right. Um, we'd be writing letters to each other. Yeah. We wouldn't be texting or, or sending emails or you know, direct messages. So you know, things evolve and, yeah. and we'd be crazy if we didn't think that research <laughs> yeah. was the same. Yeah, right. um, so that's, that's the beauty of research. Um, in the end, we'll probably, we'll probably all be proven wrong yeah. um, if, we, if we have this thought of it's right or it's wrong. Um, all it is is at this point in time, this is the evidence, mm. and we're standing on the shoulders of someone who's come before us. Sure. Um, and down the track, or, or long after I retire... Hopefully someone, yeah. It's, well, someone will take up the baton and they'll run with it and they'll, we'll have a whole new new set of information yeah. um, and they'll look back on that and they'll go well this is what we used to think mm. this is where it's at now mm. yeah which is again from your work but also that's kind of just all of evidence based medicine that we're using now is like you're doing the best with what you have right now you know mm. and it's not like you're living in a vacuum it's data and numbers is part of the big equation um, so kind of bringing it full circle to start is I guess there's probably a lot of people who are exposed to your work but don't understand the nitty gritties. Could you just define the acute to chronic workload ratio in a basic term just so people have context for the rest of the episode? Yeah, well, essentially the, the acute to chronic workload ratio is is um, looking at the acute training load that you've done, so mm -hmm. the, the training you've done in a short period of time, the chronic training load, the, the, the training that you've done over a longer period of time, and it's, it's looking at the ratio between the two. Sure. So it's looking at how much fitness you've developed, how much fatigue you've developed. Um, and it's essentially the, the measure is, um, I, it's a measure of are you prepared for the training that you're about to do? Mm, absolutely. And, and that's in the context of what, I mean, kind of where you come from. If you're a medical provider, you put it in the, the bucket for injury reduction. And if you're a strength coach or a coach, you put that in the bucket of performance. But and honestly, I think the data has shown that they're, they're running in parallel more though. In terms of the, the acute to chronic workload ratio to kind of help you with both. Yeah, absolutely. Like it, it's, um, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of stuff from individual sport showing that the ratio is related to performance. Mm. That that if you can get your fitness high and your fatigue low, you should perform well. Mm -hmm. um, it's a little bit harder to measure performance in team sport environments yeah, sure. because you know your performance is very much dependent on the performance of the opposition. Yes, um, and your so, teammates. Yeah, exactly. So there's a whole heap of factors there. Uh, so I injury risk is a lot easier to mm. to associate with. It's a lot easier to measure. But we're starting to get to points where we can where we're we're changing the na narrative now. We're starting to look at well, what's the effect of training load on performance? Right. Um, that's that's you know where the research is going. Yeah, and so kind of one of the bigger things that I took away from the weekend and anyone who's listening, we don't want to give you the course, you should go take it because it's very, very worth it. But the thing that I think was most valuable from understanding the whole thing was the concept of a floor and a ceiling and how you have a time domain of like, okay, if I want to get here and I'm here, how do I bridge that gap? Can you explain a little bit about those concepts? Yeah, well, um, essentially the floor is is your current capacity. Mm -hmm. Where are you now? Mm -hmm. um, 
the ceiling is what's the required capacity that you need to, yep. to get to. And then we've got a certain amount of time to get from point A to point B. Um, if you've got adequate time to get there, then you can, you can get from the floor to the ceiling and you can get your athlete there mm. in a safe way. But if you don't have enough time then and the ceiling doesn't change yeah. or, or the floor's not high enough, yeah. then you've got to ramp up that load pretty quickly. And, yeah. and when, you, when you ramp up your loads pretty quickly, um, it increases your, your risk of something bad happening. Sure. Sure, yeah, and kind of, so with those two things in mind, I think that, I don't remember when the first couple papers came out, early 2000s, when you were really starting to put this idea out to the world. It's been probably 10, 15 years that people have been able to chew on the data and implement these ideas. And I think in the most recent paper you put out, you were kind of saying like, okay, guys, we're, we're getting some things right, but there's definitely some stuff out there around the world that's maybe not being applied correctly. So the myths and misconception paper, what do you think are maybe just one, what do you think the, the biggest misconception or, or mistake that people make when they read your research and get fired up? They're like, okay, I think this can help a lot of people where do they maybe fall off the tracks there? Oh, look, there's a, there's a few little myths that are out there, but if we focused on one, um, it's probably that um, the acute the acute chronic workload ratio is is the holy grail. Yeah. You know that um, that it's that it's all about the ratio, or that right. there's a magic number that is associated with um, someone breaking at a certain number mm. of, of the ratio. Yeah, and avoid at all costs. Yeah, and, yeah. and the reality is that. Um, uh, you know, injuries occur due to a whole heap of reasons. Mm. Performance, um, good performance happens due to a whole heap of reasons other than just one variable. And the analogy I'll, I'll use is, is this, you know, we have a, a saying back in Australia, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. I don't mm -hmm. know if you have the mm -hmm. same, same saying over yep. here, but, um, y you know, no one interprets that, that people interpret that as, um, you know, you eat a healthy diet, then it improves your chances of staying sure. healthy. No one interprets that as saying, all I have to do is eat apples and, <laughs> yeah. and I'm going to be healthy. Yeah. And it's the same thing with, with training load. Um, it's not just about the ratio. Sure. Um, ratio is, the acute chronic ratio is, is part of the, the process that, that allows you to safely progress and regress loads. In its, in its purest sense, that's what it does. Sure. Um, but to think it's the holy grail and I think that's the only thing you need to do mm. to monitor your athletes to keep them healthy, um, you know, it's, it's as crazy as an yeah. apple a day keeps the doctor away. <laughs> yeah, that's not how we, that's not how the world works, but that's definitely not how sports work. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of cool. I think um, a lot of that stuff is existent on the data that we have and maybe your trends and something that's come up in the course and, and kind of my world, I have a lot of people who I work with that are youth, that are youth athletes and there's a lot of people out there, including Mike and Lenny where I'm at, that are working with, you know, 12 to 16 year old baseball players. They're not pro paid adults. Mm. And uh, you know, I work in gymnastics a lot and I'm, I'm curious about, and again, this kind of drifts away from the data or you can kind of speak to what data is not available, but I'm curious about your thoughts on how maybe this is, how do you apply this in the youth population? What are some differences? And then also, if we don't have any information, where do you think that trend of, of splintering off for research is going? Mm. Well, there's, there's certainly a lot more more data in, in the adult population than there is in, in the adolescent population. Yep. So um, we can't necessarily apply what we know from adult research to adolescents because the the findings that we've seen with, with adults in that higher chronic loads tend to be protective mm. against injuries or associated with lower injury rates. Um, it, it may not be the case in young people. Yeah. Um, and there's there's not a lot of research on on the, the negative effects that come with training sure. in young people. Um, 
Now, that's that's not to say that there's no negative effects. Yeah. It just just means that there's not a lot of research. So, so I think there's a you know there's a room to do research there. Yeah. Um, f- from a practical point of view, um, one of the things that we need to be able to do, you know, rather than just just monitoring and um, with with young athletes, is we need to to understand that biologically they're they're different mm. from adults they're not just mini adults sure. um, so it, all we need to think about is is skeletal maturation there when the bones the bones aren't fully formed they're soft bones so mm. um, they're going to respond to load differently sure um, and but the, by the same token one of the things we can help young athletes with is teaching them how to train yeah um, learning how to train learning what what a hard session is learning um, mm. that that not everything is a is a ten. You know, yeah. like if you haven't trained before, everything is a ten. Um, but and but we also have to help them find safely find moments where they can they can push a little bit more. Or they need to pull back yeah. a little bit. So they they learn they learn to understand their body a yeah. little bit better. Yeah, and I think um, something that I've noticed in my work, I coach a lot of gymnastics people and I, I work with a lot of these youth athletes, and I think that when we were looking at the model of, okay, who's involved in the decision-making, it was coach, you know, um, the medical provider, strength coaches, and the athlete, and then, you know, in our world, the biggest done is a parent. There's a parent now involved who is their job to help take care of their kids safely and help them get their goals. You know, they're not making all the decisions. And so that's a really important voice that you have to consider when you're talking about training loads and competition and stuff like that. And I think that, I guess, just trying to help people out who are listening, who are struggling with how do I apply your work to, you know, the youth is like, you gotta have a really fluid conversation with the parents. Sometimes that doesn't involve the kids sitting there, which is challenging sometimes, but that's an honest part of it. Yeah, look, I think in most in most cases, parents want the best for their kids. Sure. Um, but but I think that the, the parent has to be honest about about mm. where they are in the process as yeah. well. Yeah. That are are they there to support support the child and, and help them develop as an athlete, or are they are they kind of living uh, living their life through the child and, mm. and the child's achievements in sport? And mm. um, sometimes sometimes we get some really supportive parents mm-hmm. that that understand that it's it's hard when you're when you're stealing from a whole heap of different energy from a whole heap of different sources and you're playing multiple sports, which yeah. might be a good thing, yeah. but it's adding a lot of load. Totally. Um, and it, it may be that, you know, you need to have a think about it, that it's, yeah, good that they're involved in sport and they're physically active, but something's got to give. Yeah. Um, you, you've only got 100% of capacity. Mm-hmm. You can only fill your glass up so full mm-hmm. and you've got a number of sports plus your schoolwork, plus all the personal stresses that come with that, at some point you're going to reach capacity. Yeah. Um, so you've got to decide what you're going to fill your glass up with. Mm. Yeah, and that's a really emerging thing that I think is happening from the research of, of looking at um, the IOC consensus statements on youth long-term athletic development is they're factoring in more of the multiple stresses that people have. And we had talked about this in the course, but I've always been in gymnastics, so I kind of use your work and many other people in periodization of like the, the loading of actual training but then also there's some good work from like Robert Sapolsky and some other people of looking at just like stress in general and how that affects kids when they're young and I'm curious about kind of with that context if you can only fill your cup up so high I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on embracing thinking about all stressors you know the emotional stressor that somebody has with their family outside the gym how does that affect can you push hard at training or the social reactions that people have within a team and stuff like that I'm curious mm-hmm. about how you maybe apply and see that data play out in team environments mm-hmm. in terms of multiple stressors 
Yeah, look, I, we, we try and capture some of those stresses in, in you know, the wellbeing scales mm-hmm. that we use. Um, so sleep and stress and mood and energy and fatigue levels, those kind of things. Um, I think part of the issue or part of the thing we don't do so well, we understand load and we understand to improve load capacity. You need to have your load slightly higher than mm-hmm. capacity. Um, but one of the things where I don't think we we've done as well as we should is consider the health factors, mm. those stresses, totally. and, and realise that those stresses can impact on your capacity at any point in time. So mm. you, you haven't actually lost strength, you, you haven't actually lost fitness, but due to um, an increased stress or a decreased sleep, you've lost capacity at that given point in time. Right. And I, one of the things that I, that I think we need to get better at, not only um, in the research we do, but also practically in the mm. field, is tying together these sure. different components of the model. So we've got load, capacity mm. and, and health. Um, it's not just a matter of loading to increase performance. Yep. Um, it's not just a matter of increasing capacity and increasing performance. You need to consider the health yeah, component, absolutely. the stresses in all of this. Yeah, and I think there's there's two kind of things that I always think about. One is that when you do measure session RPE, that is definitely influenced by outside factors significantly, right? So if someone is having a fight with their parents or they're more stressed out or they didn't sleep, you're going to probably hopefully see that reflected in the session RPE where maybe that's a more demanding effort. And kind of from the stress research side is that it's been very clear that the perception of effort recruits more of a stress response, which is very interesting. So if somebody's like heavy legged and they feel like crap, they're like, oh God, this is brutal, right? They're going to they're actually gonna recruit more of a cortisol flood, which is then that much more you have to recover from. And again, this is looking at just like stress research in general. So it's, it's interesting that I've read kind of different pieces of literature and you actually see that same U-curve of the way that stress hormones affect um, you know, the, the body and the brain and the long-term effects. And I was showing you some of those graphs. It's, it's almost the same thing at a molecular level. It's if you spike it real hard, real fast, like a PTSD situation, that's probably not good. There's been documented cases of that. But if you get into that the kind of moderate loading and a slow buildup, it's protective against mental health and things like that. And then you start to tip on the other side of the curve where it's what mm. they call exotoxic, where it's starting to actually damage you. And so that's the wear and tear. And I, uh, I think that if you, if you overlap some of those graphs, it's like, wow, that's like really interesting. And it's mm. going from the cellular stuff up to the really high level workload stuff, but it's, it's more alike than different, which is really interesting. Yeah. I want to be a fly on the wall if you and Robert ever have coffee together. Look, um, <laughs> I, I haven't, I haven't read that that research yeah. in full, um, and you know, you show me I'll that today. I'll send the book to you. Yeah, look, I mean, <laughs> it, it's it's it sounds fascinating mm. actually, and um, I haven't met Robert, but like the research sounds um, so cool, and and like I mentioned to you earlier, I, it, it's it's not the the world that I that I live in on mm. a daily basis and because a lot of the time the conversations I have are nowhere near these <laughs> conversations with coaches and, sure. and athletes sure. but um, yeah like it'd be, it'd be great to sit down with him yeah. and just just um, see how he he sees his work fitting in with with some of this um, just the general training load stuff that we've been doing because it sounds like there is a yeah some similarities and it gets to a situation where you're so I mean people forget that you know as a researcher as you are and maybe as I as I put myself like we're actively busy every day we have a lot of stuff to do it's hard to, to know so much about so so wide of a field mm. and it's actually funny I contacted him when I was working on stuff and he said the same thing he was like oh I'm real busy writing this like lab study but like I've never really heard about this I'd be interested in and he said the same thing and it's like yeah. everyone's kind of like we got stuff to do man it's, not, it's easier said than done to keep up with everything yeah yeah that's right um, yeah so kind of on the on the next progression of this is there was a really interesting paper in BJSM in 2016 um, from S Grand I believe is the way you promoted and he was they essentially looked at 
the, the type of coaching style that existed in an organization in football, and they compared that to injuries and uh, time missed from practice. And it was interesting that they found a correlation between authoritative dictatorship style and more injury uh, prediction or also more time missed from practice. And just kind of tying all those threads together is chicken or egg is it a hardcore coach pushes the loading harder and faster and doesn't listen to a strength coach or a sports scientist is like, no, this is how we train. And maybe they, you know, the other side of a more open leadership model is they embrace everybody's ideas, valuable. But I thought that was one of the more interesting studies I've ever read related to mm. how maybe all this bleeds over together. But uh, I'd never seen that before. It was subjective. It was the medical provider's opinion of the coach. So you got to take out the grain of salt on the evidence mm. level. But that was fascinating to me. I don't know if you... Yeah, look, I, yeah, I have seen the paper. It's an interesting one because um, if you have more injuries um, uh, as a medical provider, maybe maybe you're uh, more inclined to, to say, well, it, it's because the, the coach doesn't listen and he's <laughs> such a dictator yeah. that yeah. he just pushes them too hard. Um, and when you have a, when you have a, a good year and uh -huh. um, the, the injury rates are low, maybe you're, maybe you're more inclined to say, yeah, the coach was uh, really understanding, he mm. was open to, open to the things that we suggested. It's, it's a hard... Um, you know, there's no perfect study, so I'm not yeah. being critical of any, any oh. research, but... Um, there's there's always at least two ways to interpret information and it'd be interesting to see how a, a coach with a very open style um, and and who goes through perhaps they go through a poor injury run mm. so they get a, a run of injuries mm -hmm. and whether that changes his style and yeah, um, very interesting and whether it's whether it is chicken or egg whether mm -hmm. the injuries start to to bring about authoritarian yeah. and dictator yeah. type style, or, and maybe the dictator. I never thought of that. When yeah. they when they when they they've they have a few injuries, but then the injuries clear up and they go through a bit of a run and he's all happy <laughs> and he's not yeah. and he's open again. Totally, so yeah, oh, I, didn't, I didn't even think about that. That's really interesting. Uh, I have to go back and look at how many seasons it was across. Maybe look at the data year to year. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, like a. Um, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of research coming out of that UEFA group. Mm, so cool. Um, you know, and there's multiple teams involved, so yep. it's, that's that's obviously helpful too. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's really helpful. So I guess shifting gears into more of the the applications of some of these things, um, I'm curious. We talked about a really interesting, couple of interesting concepts that I'd never even had on my radar. So on the application side, one is that it's easier to measure um, an external workload in, in a running athlete because it's just GPS, or it's easier to maybe measure that for you know throws or something like that. How would you suggest that practitioners that are working in maybe more uh, mixed kind of variable sports, so like I'm thinking of wrestling, I'm thinking of CrossFit, I'm thinking of gymnastics, where there's infinite possible things to measure. I mean, are there any kind of like trends in the research emerging that people are brainstorming? We had a couple over the weekend, but I'm curious about maybe your recommendations for someone who's like, how in the world do I quantify this? Because it's so, there's so many moving pieces. Yeah, well, let's let's use uh, wrestling or, or CrossFit as an example, maybe maybe but I mean gymnastics is a really good example yeah um, GPS is not going to be the answer because yeah. straight away you're, you're indoors for yeah. the majority of that but if if you can afford iner inertial measurement sensors mm -hmm. they, they're so small now that um, even small athletes like the, the gymnasts won't even know they're there yep so potentially um, inertial measurement sensors that measure um, either accelerometer load, mm -hmm. accelerations and decelerations, or they have gyroscopes in them so oh, yeah. they, can, they can measure the, 
these kind of movements. Stuff, yeah. um, so those those kind of sensors are going to be potentially really good. And and it's it's just the way of this technology. When it first came out, it was really expensive. Yeah, yeah. But um, as as it becomes um, more affordable to, to develop them, they're going to become more more yep. affordable. Every, every person yeah. could uh, yeah. potentially. Yeah, we have one on our phone now for iPhones. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. So um, they're going to become more affordable, which means they're going to become more accessible to pretty much every athlete, yeah, including sure. including amateur athletes. Yep. Yeah, and I think we had talked about too how maybe that can pair with some pure physiological data like heart rate straps and things like that and looking at maybe mm. the percentage of time you're working in certain intensities yep. um, so yeah that's I mean that's personally what I think I'm going to go back home and let this kind of sink in for a couple of days and then probably hit it pretty hard in the next month trying to figure out where does this apply and how to kind of start implementing some of that stuff so I'll let you know if it all goes well yeah good um, luck with it so on the kind of continuation of that I think uh, a lot of medical providers are taking some pretty big uh, I guess I guess leaps is the best thing. They're reading papers or data on this topic, and they're making a pretty big aggressive jump onto how to apply it to the medical world of pathology. And something I'd ask you is, is you know, how do you approach this when someone's chronic load is so low because they've had surgery, say they have a slap tear, say they have a hip labral tear, and they're just limited by their protocol and the pathology. So like the grafts can't be loaded for a certain amount or the tissue can't be loaded for so much and just walking is too much to stress the graphs mm-hmm. so they're in crutches what do you think that is the best way for someone saying okay you're maybe you're out of pain and i'm trying to think about your your floor is real low because you're in you're in a rehab setting but you were an elite level athlete with and now your labrum is repaired how in the world are we going to get you across there and where do i start mm. yeah i mean that that situation is a tough one because mm-hmm. um you know, we're talking about the floor, but in reality, you're in the basement um, <laughs> yeah, because you're, yeah, right. you're so far away from mm. from just the the capacity that you require to, to do your everyday life. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the, f- the first thing you need to be respectful of is, is be respectful of biological healing sure. time. In, in the for bottleneck. The, the most, for the most part, you can't you can't cheat it. Mm. Um, you know, if you've got a if you've got a broken arm, it's going to take you six weeks for that <laughs> yeah. bone to heal. Yeah. Um, you know, there may be situations where you might be able to to maybe get on the front foot a little bit. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's an ankle sprain, and you can you yeah. can tape it tape it up reasonably well, yeah. and and you can cheat biological healing a little bit. But for the most part, you've just got to be respectful of that. Mm-hmm. It's going to take time for that um, tissue to heal, and and there's not a lot that you can do about that. But you know, in that in that time, uh, I think we've got to be really mindful of the fact that just because you can't do certain things, it doesn't mean that your yeah. chronic load right. needs to to shut down completely. And right. that's that's where I think um, uh, sometimes there's mistakes being made. That um, you know, let's let's take an, this is a real example of of a, an athlete who had a, a high ankle sprain. He was put in a or it might have been an Achilles. Uh, Achilles tendinopathy he's mm-hmm. put in a boot mm-hmm. by the doctor and the mm-hmm. doctor said stay in the boot for four weeks yeah. stays in the boot for four weeks and and then the parents ask well what happens at the end of the, the four week period the doctor says you can go back you're cleared, and, you're cleared to play you go you can go back and <laughs> yeah. start playing again yeah. so you've you've your chronic loads tracked down to zero and then you you ask him to to go from the basement up to the ceiling mm-hmm. in one go what I'd suggest there is there's a lot of things that you can't there's some things that you can't yeah. do okay so uh, if you've got an Achilles tendinopathy maybe there's some things you can't do if you've got a slap tear maybe there's, there's some things that you can't do but there's a lot of things that you can do right. to maintain chronic load yep. and it, it may not be um, things that you can do on that particular shoulder but 
you want to try and keep chronic load up in as many different ways yeah. as you can. You, you, this this may decondition a little bit, but you don't want the rest of the body yeah. to decondition. There's good it. rehab for that down the road. That's why you do it. You know, there's a way to get that back up to speed. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And I think kind of for the advice building off that topic is, um, I think there's two really important things for the medical world to take on. So one is that you have to really understand the nuances of surgeries and what structures are affected and talk with the doctor about, okay, what did they have done? Because sometimes they open up your shoulder, your knee, and they're like, whoa, like we, there's a lot more than we thought was in here. Mm. That completely throws off the protocol. And so you have to be communicate, over-communicate with the doctors about what happened, and you have to really do your homework to understand the pathology. But in the same sense, there's so many other things. You have three more quadrants in your body that you can maintain load with. And the perfect example is if you have an ACL tear and you're cleared a couple weeks out, put your foot up on the Airdyne bike and use your hands and use the other leg. There's, that's still an aerobic fitness level that you can maintain. Mm. There's other stuff that you can do if you understand the pathology and you communicate and you respect the tissue. There's plenty of stuff you can do. And as, as some of the research is showing, if you can maintain even a little bit of that, that's huge. Well, not to mention up top for the athlete. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I just wonder if there, there's potentially a systemic effect as well. Huge, that, yeah. Um, it, that you're, you're doing exercise with a with a different limb, yep. but it's it's actually providing some physiological adaptation For to sure. the injured limb. Yeah. Um, so if nothing yeah. else, it's blood flow. <laughs> it's like yeah. you know, dopamine yeah. releasing some chemicals of like, oh, I'm actually working out, still. I'm not, you know, hung up in a bed. It's huge for the athlete. Yeah, like when you think about you think about rehab, it's a it's a pretty pretty lonely place. <laughs> yeah, um, even even if you've got a lot of other athletes in there with you, it's a yeah. lonely place. So, yeah. um, you you no no athlete wants to be in rehab. They want to be out with the team, or they want to be mm. competing. That's what they do. Yeah. So um, the you you want to try and make that athlete be feeling good about themselves as often as possible and mm. one of the ways you can do that is through training hard and 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 winning a session yeah yeah it's 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 their way of um of of okay i've done something and i've achieved something i've done something successful today so yeah. um you know pretty much all athletes they they want to be feeling successful they yeah. want to be feeling like winners so yeah. that's a way for them to to be winning when they're not actually um, competing on the field. Yeah, absolutely. And I can speak from, from experience of, I'm, I'm really lucky to have good mentors who worked in high-level sports, Mike and Lenny, and they, they really have helped us build an environment where people come and it doesn't feel like a death trap. It doesn't feel like, oh, I've got to go to rehab. You know, it's like, one, you have a good environment. But two, is like, again, if you understand the pathology and you can push the athlete with all your tools that you have, it's either, you know, BFR is becoming popular now or you find another way to train. They sweat a little bit. They're in the rehab clinic. They're like, damn, like I'm, I'm kind of working hard here, you know? And it's mm. like, that kind of want that makes them want to come back. I'm thinking of I have two uh, like four to six week ACLs right now, and like they're like happy to get there because like all right, like I, I get an hour working, I can't do this, but I got plenty of other stuff I can do, mm. and that's that's huge for the athlete I think in terms of uh, returning to play back safely, but also in terms of it's it's three to six months, man. It's a grind in, in some of these big surgeries, and if yeah. you don't if you don't set this tone up real early, you're gonna probably lose the athlete down the road with trust. Yeah, so, yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, so kind of moving, I guess pulling back the scope now is I guess couple more questions one is um, these uh, concepts oftentimes we have a thought process in our head about like oh it's gonna be great for the organization this is gonna be great and we get to the we get to the actual implementation and maybe the coach is like yeah well whatever like I, I know how to coach like don't tell me what to do with these workloads or you get again like we had talked about you know the medical providers pulling in one direction the SNC coaches pulling in another the parents terrified what's gonna happen to their athlete or their younger what are maybe some of your tips from experience about how to the softer skills of maybe talking about the language you use about implementing these new concepts and how you would maybe recommend people who are learning this implement this with their team or with their organization or whatever it is. Uh, firstly, I'd, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't try and sell it from an injury mm. point of view. Um, 
athletes, um, coaches, they don't want to hear about injuries. <laughs> yeah. to, um, they want it, They don't like hearing about performance, though. Totally. So um, come at it from a performance point of view. Mm. Um, the, the second thing is, uh, and this is a, a real-life example of, we, we've done some education with athletes around the importance of monitoring load and... Um, mm. You know, we, we don't know if we're progressing your loads adequately mm-hmm. unless you you enter your data. Mm-hmm. And and the athletes were pretty good. They said, oh, okay, yeah, we we can see your point. We need to get better at this. Sure. And that that was interesting. Yeah. But the real interesting thing was when they they turned around to us and said, but here's some things that you need to get better at. Mm. And and once my ears pricked up when I heard, yeah. okay, now yeah. now we're having a conversation. Absolutely. Um, now this is interesting. So the first the first thing is, they say they said um, we we want we want feedback. Mm. Um, we we want to know what's what's the plan. Um, if we're having a hard session, we want to know that session. We want to know the plan in advance. Mm. So we so we can mentally prepare for it. We mm. want to get our head around the fact that it's going to be a hard right. session. Right, right. Um, so that we can mentally and physically prepare for that. And then they also said if and you know you you must know if we're going three weeks hard, one week easy, (laughs) or or we want to know when those hard weeks are. We want to know where we're going Mm. so that if we're in the the third week of a hard block, then then we've just got to push for this this week, we'll get to the end of the spot because it's going to be an easy week coming. Yeah, right at the end of the tunnel. So (laughs) so these are some things that we would like. Yeah. And... You know, I think I think we probably assume that ah, oh, well, it's it's science, so they don't they don't want to know about yeah. it. But um, if we're collecting information on them, then you know they they want to know how to get yeah. better. And this is and and that's the way I, w- I would be focusing on focusing on performance, focusing on this is how we're going to get you better. Mm. Um, and and the third part is they want to see they want to see that. If if they're putting numbers in and their 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 well-being is tracking down, and they're saying that they're tired and they're mm. sore and um, they're really fatigued, then they want to see something change on the yeah. back of that. Yeah, um, they want to hear you're listening to them. Yeah, mm. um, because you know a, a lot of a lot of uh, people collect the data and they think that's the end point. Sure. That's not the end point. The data collection is not the end point. You you have to have some some sort of um, tied to some sort of outcome. So if you want to, is the, is the data related to, to injury? Is it related to performance or is it related to well-being? If, yeah. um, if we're loading really heavy and our well-being is tracking down, mm. depending on where you are in your season, that may not be a good thing. Yeah. Um, in, in pre-season, it, it may be expected at mm-hmm, times, mm-hmm. but if you're going into your biggest game of your season, <laughs> the grand final, yeah. you don't want your well-being tracking down. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great point. It's funny you mentioned that I didn't tell this story and I should have in the um, in the in the seminar. But uh, on the conversation is uh, a real life example. I, I mean, I coach fifteen, eight or twelve to fifteen year old girls, right? So we have a, a radical transparency policy in our um, facility where it's like if it's professionally delivered and it's honest and it's appropriate, you can tell us anything and we're allowed to critique your behaviors. Vice versa, it's like an open community. And one time I was like, guys, I think we really need to pick it up on these two events. Uh, it's really like you're you're kind of falling apart. You're not sleeping enough. Like you really aren't giving it the effort. And two days later, they wrote us a one-page letter about all the things that we needed to approve upon as well. So a bunch of 12 to 15-year-old girls, and I have it here in the back of my, like, I keep it in the back of my uh, in my notebook, but it was hilarious for me because I was the same thing. At one, at one part of me was like, wow, the gall on these kids. This is this is amazing. And my friend Nick, who uh, worked the elite level at GBR, he was like, that takes some gall to like type that out and give it to you. But at the same time, I sat down and I was like, 
we're having a conversation. This is perfect. This is yeah. amazing. It means that you listened and I listened and we're back and forth and we haven't had a, a more successful culture in the last two years since that happened. Hmm. Uh, because again, they, they said like, okay, we hear you, but also by the way, you're maybe being a little bit on the fence here too. And so yeah. it made for a very good conversation. So I, I, it's, it's a hard conversation to have for sure. Yeah. But it's, it's important. Well, you know, like uh, if you've got a 13 to 15 year old kid uh, writing you a letter, you could interpret it as, wow, this is, yeah. this, I wouldn't have done that as a 13 year old, but, <laughs> but it probably, it's probably an indication of, of the level of trust and yeah, the relationship you've, you've developed with them. And that's what you want. You want to have, be able to communicate. You, Things have changed where it used to be just coaches standing over the top of an athlete yeah. saying, you will do this, yeah. um, or you're out of the squad. Um, or, you know, I, I really think we need to tap into how how each of our athletes tick and, yep. and what, what gets them going. Yep. It, because, um, you know, screaming at one athlete to motivate them, that, that might actually work for some athletes. Mm. But screaming at another one, it, it might just send them down into a stressful <laughs> yeah, spiral. Path, yeah. yeah, so uh, working out what makes each of them tick is a really, really big yeah. skill in coaching. Yeah, and it, it kind of taking that full circle of how that matters with trust is it, it's only until we built the, the foundation first were we able to really be like, hey, like this is going to be uncomfortable, but you got to push through this. Like once you build that trust, you can manipulate back and forth. And I think that the coaches that have the most trust from what I've seen in the elite world, in the Olympic world, they have earned the right to, you know, push hard when you need to and pull back when you need to because the athletes, you know, care. They like, think, okay, well, you heard, you heard me one time when I needed less, but now I'm willing to go down that path with you because you say this is what I need to do to perform better. So mm. uh, I, whenever I travel and I teach, every single lecture I have is always built upon build the foundation of your habits and your values and your cultures, figure out who you are as a coach or an athlete or a provider, and then you can build on the tactics on top of that. If you flip that over, it's never going to work. So mm. that's a good point. So I guess... Last question is nothing related to workloads. I'm more curious, just as a personal thing for you, is uh, why you spend so much time working so hard on this and kind of what's your why behind it is hours and hours and hours to do these studies. And as you alluded to, you don't get paid a lot for doing research. And I'm curious about, you know, what you do behind the scenes that maybe people don't understand about why you put so much time into it. Yeah, these are always the hardest questions, you know, like... (laughs) Philosophical? Yeah, they're a bit philosophical, (laughs) but... um, you know, I, I, learned, I learned really early that um, that the harder you work, the easier things get. Mm. And you know that 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 hard work ethic was was drilled into me from a from a really early age. I, I had some great role models in my dad and my mum, and um, I'm really you know I'm really lucky to have the role models mm. that I had. Um, I don't I don't want to die wondering. So I don't I don't want to be sitting on my uh, in my, on my line on my deathbed going oh, I should have done this or I should yeah. have done that um, you know I've been lucky enough that that I can do this particular thing mm. um, and there's a lot of things that I can't do you know I joke that I'm, I'm flat out boiling an egg um, so you know so it just so happens that in this little part of life that that I've been you know, I'm lucky enough that I can understand this stuff okay, mm. and um, and I can make it um, accessible. I can make science accessible mm. to people, and that um, you know, there's a there's a lot yeah, of really yeah. good scientists yeah. out there. But um, but if you can't explain the science to a barmaid, mm. um, then maybe it's not. Maybe it's, you don't know it so well, or maybe it's not that important. Mm. And and one. One thing my dad always says to me is, you can't kick goals when you're sitting in the grandstand. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so, you know, it, it sort of ties in with my don't die wondering. You know, like if, if 
you can sit you can sit in the grandstand and you can be critical of people and um, and and you can go through your whole life and never really have a crack. Mm. But um, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna keep at it, um, <laughs> yeah. keep keep working away at things, and if I if I can do something, I'm gonna keep doing it while I can. Yeah. Um, who knows if I do it forever? Mm. But um, you know, I'm, I'm gonna keep trying to kick goals yeah. and, and keep stay in the game. You know, yeah. I'm gonna keep you gotta gotta stay in the game to try and try and win it and that's yep. what I'm gonna keep doing. I'm just gonna keep competing and get the best out of my camp. Yeah, myself as I can. That's a that's a great way to end it. I'm I'm very similar not to dive into it, but I'm very motivated by the fear of regret, like down the road, like ah oh, crap, I could have I should have, maybe I did this. So that's that's the fuel every day. But Tim, I thank you so much. I think you don't realize how much your work has impacted a lot of people around the world in terms of just the health and wellness of their people, but also feeling like they're moving towards a good goal so I thank you for all your work and anybody who is curious about the course you should absolutely take it this was like one of the better courses I've taken in a long time so look up the rest of your dates and move forward through that but uh, where can people find you if they want to look up courses or more information uh, look you can, you can find me on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram yeah. so um, you know I'm, I'm getting better at um, Facebook better at, better at <laughs> responding <laughs> <laughs> yeah I should, yeah like if you're interested in the research go to ResearchGate or PubMed um, yeah. Uh, typically, we put some some papers and some blogs um, mm. on our website, gabbertperformance.com. Uh, yeah, re- reach out; we'll always get back in touch with you. And, yeah. Um, you know, we just we want to we want to try and make research accessible and mm. get people training hard and, yeah. and training in a smart way. Totally, absolutely. Well, I got a train to catch, and you got to go probably take a nap after all your work. <laughs> so, I thank you for your time. Yeah, pleasure. Cool. Thank you. All right, guys, thank you so much for your time and your attention. I appreciate you tuning into The Shift Show. I hope that you got a lot of information out of this episode. If you want to learn even more about the concepts inside this episode, be sure to check out the show notes where I've included some more information. You can head over to shiftmovementscience.com to get tons more free content, or you can also head over to any of my social media accounts where I offer lots of free content for all these ideas. If you found this podcast helpful, I would really appreciate it if you headed over to iTunes and rated and reviewed this, as well as pass this on to your community members so that they can have the same ideas and tools that you have. Uh, If you have any questions or want to reach out to me about certain topics, probably the best way to do that is through social media and I will do my best to help you out. Have a great day. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to that episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it and got a lot of value out of it. I just want to let you know before we sign off here that a couple things we'd love for you to do. So one is please just make sure that you rate and review the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher, wherever you're listening, because that really does help the episode grow quite a bit. And then second, if you really enjoyed this episode, we would love if you left us a review as well and told us what you liked about it. You know, what information was useful, what things were not useful, would you like to know more about, what guests do you want to have on in the future? And then also as you kind of go about your day, if you found something really useful, just toss it up on social media. We love to hear from people on Instagram or Twitter or, you know, all the different websites that they're using for social media. Facebook is great too. But yeah, let us know what you like because honestly, the podcast comes from people who just tell us what they're finding useful and that's how we create the next set of content. So yeah, tag us in the podcast or tag us online, whatever you're doing it and uh, let us know what you think. Thanks.